Well, good morning again. A few years ago, an article was written in Christianity Today magazine. I don't know if you've ever seen it or paid attention to it online or whatever, but uh, the article was a true story about a miracle that took place in the life of a Muslim man and woman, and it opened their hearts to God. And as I said, it's a true story, and here's how the man described the miracle. I want you to listen carefully to it. One night, this man says, uh, the only food that my wife and I had for dinner was a small portion of macaroni. You can moan with me. Ugh. That's not my favorite. I just, that's like, which means I had nothing to eat, is how I, I would view that. I'm not a big macaroni fan. So but this gave, one night, the only food my wife and I had for dinner was a small portion of macaroni. My wife prepared it very nicely, but as we sat down to eat, one of her friends knocked on the door. I taught, told myself the macaroni is not sufficient for even the two of us. So how will it be enough for three of us? But because we Muslims have no other custom, he says, we, we opened the door and she came in to eat with us. While we were eating, I noticed the macaroni started to multiply in the bowl. It became full in the bowl. I suspected that something was wrong with my eyes, so I started rubbing them. And then I thought, maybe my wife hid some macaroni under the, small t under, under the table. So I, I checked, and there was nothing. Can't you just see it? Looking underneath the table. My wife and I looked at each other, but because the guest was there, we said nothing to each other. It goes on and says, afterward, I lay down on our bed for the night, and as I slept, Isa, which... If you don't know this, Isa is the Arabic name for Jesus. Isa, he says, came to me and asked me, do you know who multiplied the macaroni? I said, I don't know. He said, I am Isa al-Masih, which is Arabic for Jesus the Messiah. I am Isa al-Masih. And if you follow me, not only the macaroni, but your life will be multiplied. Well, shortly after that, uh, that man and his wife publicly confessed Jesus as their Savior and Lord. They were baptized, uh, gave their life to Jesus, and uh, have been Christians ever since. It's an amazing story. Muslims all around the world are encountering Jesus in some remarkable ways right now, some of them in dreams and visions and miracles and various stuff. But here's what I want you to think about with this story in mind. Every one of us needs God's surprise provision sometime in our lives. Every one of us needs that. We might need macaroni to multiply. We may need dollars in our bank account to multiply. Maybe you need something else to multiply. But every one of us needs God's surprise provision sometime in our lives. And this morning, I want to remind you from Scripture that God has unlimited resources and He's willing to surprise us with them, to share them with us. It will respond to him in faith and learn to become generous people like he is a generous God. I want you to open your Bible with me to a passage in the Old Testament. It's one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament. I've taught through this passage several times over the years because I love it. It's 2 Kings chapter 4. And... Uh, Today I'm going to walk us through the passage. It's, it's filled with insight on how to experience more of God's provision in our lives. 
2 Kings chapter 4. We're going to start with verse 1, and it's a, an amazing scene that you'll uh, just, I hope that you, God will help you to just envision it and picture it in your mind as it unfolds here. The Bible says, 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 1, you can follow along on the screen if you don't have a Bible with you, but I encourage you to bring one with you if you don't have one today. The Bible says, one day the widow of a member of the group of prophets came to Elisha and cried out, my husband who served you is dead, and you know how he feared the Lord. But now a creditor has come threatening to take my two sons as slaves. Let's just pause right there just to get the scene real firmly in our mind. This is the wife of another prophet. And there was a group of prophets at the time who would serve alongside Elisha. And they kind of began during the days of Elijah. And they would serve alongside of them. And together, they would discern the will of the voice of the Lord. They would often you know, proclaim the judgments of God, the, the instructions of God to kings of various lands and cities and various places. And they'd kind of work at this together. And this was one of those prophets that's died. And this is the wife of one of them. And you can see from the text that now debt has her trapped because her husband's dead. There's no income source for her anymore, at least not enough to get by. We don't know how the debt mounted, but clearly um, it was some kind of unsecured debt because as we read on in the text, in just a few moments, you're going to see that she sold everything except the roof over her head. So uh, this is unsecured debt here. And she says, my sons, this, this creditor has come threatening to take my two sons as slaves because this is the way they dealt with that in those days. I mean, you didn't just declare bankruptcy and walk away from it. There was no no-fault bankruptcy. No bankruptcy was your fault in these days, and uh, like it is in many parts of the world. And, and so this is, and the way that you dealt with that was slavery, you know, it, it wasn't like how we think of slavery in our day. It was, it was very different. So anyway, this is the context. And for pick up with verse 2, Elijah speaking. Elijah says, what can I do to help you, Elijah asked. Elisha asked. Tell me, what do you have in the house? Nothing at all except a flask of olive oil. Thus, the bottle of olive oil here. Just a flask of olive oil. That's all. And Elisha said, borrow as many empty jars as you can from your friends and neighbors. Then go into your house with your sons and shut the door behind you and pour olive oil from your flask into the jars, setting each one aside when it is filled. So she did as she was told. Her sons kept bringing jars to her and she filled one after another. And soon every container was full to the brim. Bring me another jar, she said to one of her sons. There aren't any more, he told her. And then the olive oil stopped flowing. When she told the man of God what had happened, he said to her, Now sell the olive oil and pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on what is left over. This is a rich passage, so many insights that uh, we could discern from it. But this morning what I want us to do is I want us to think about uh, three insights into experiencing more of God's provision into our lives, and our, you know, particularly his financial provision into our lives. And it's just so important for us to, you know, to reflect on the teaching of this passage, to put into practice the things that we're going to talk about, because it can help make the difference for some of us. 
and really for all of us. So I just encourage you to uh, reflect with me through this passage. The three insights. First insight is that you and I, if we're going to experience more of God's provision for us and for our family, is that we've got to think differently. It's the first insight that shows up here. We, we have to think differently about money in particular. We have to think differently about it. Yeah, what the text reveals to us is we need to begin to recognize the true source of our financial well-being. And in the world in which we live, this gets really fuzzy. I mean, God wants us to understand that the true source of our financial well-being is not our spouse, as the widow is feeling. It's not our employers who deposit money into your account on a regular basis. It's not about your parents they're not your provider. You know, the source of your financial well-being is not those trust accounts that you have or investments that you've made. It's not your incredible work ethic. It's none of those things. All of those things play a part, but the fact is those are not the source. God is the source. We've got to recognize that. We've got to remember that. In fact, what do we see going on in the incident here in the text? We see that God is the source of the widow's need and provision. He meets the need. In fact, what you notice, God is the source of all shark tank ideas for how to make money. I mean, he really is. You are not all that smart, and neither am I. Some of us make money hand over fist with our creative ideas. Good for you. I wish I could say that it came from you. But it didn't. I mean, in a snap of a finger, God could shut your mind down. He could put that same idea in the mind of someone else. And guess what? They make all the deposits and not you, not me. What we see in the text is that really God is the source of all our ideas for how to make money. And all that's required is one idea, one leading that's authentic from God because ideas, and this is significant, in our culture and in every culture throughout the history of mankind, ideas equal money. Good ideas. They do. And God gave this widow one through Elisha. It's important that we seek God, not money, when we're trying to escape debt, when we're trying to provide for our family, because only God can give the ideas and only he can do the impossible. I guess my question for you is if you find yourself in a need, we're in a state where you need money to multiply, where you need macaroni to multiply, you need something else to multiply in your life. My question for you, have you been seeking God or have you been living like money is your solution? Just borrowing more, working more and more and more? Have you just been living as though searching for income producing ideas without God is somehow going to happen in your life? God wants us to remember from this text and others like it in Scripture that the solution for your financial need and mine is not more money. It's more of God and His thoughts and His ways. It's found in His presence, in His brilliance. Why don't you remember what Jesus Himself said? Matthew 6, 33, Jesus says, Seek the kingdom of God Above all else, you know that word above all else in most of the translations, it's really translated first. 
the New Living, this is one instance where I kind of, I don't like the New Living translation as well in this instance. Because most of the other translations say first, because it, the point is, is seek the kingdom of God preeminently, first, first place. It's, it fits within the scriptural teaching of first fruits. It's just like the very first place you go is to seek the kingdom of God and live righteously, the text goes on and says, and he will give you everything you need. And that's really a lot of what he's driving at there is that it's not you or me being the source. It's not our employer being the source or something else, but it's really God being our source, the provider of all that we need. This brings us to a second insight for experiencing more of God's provision. If, if he's the source, guess what? I, I got to trust more. I got to trust more. Uh, because this is not just about me working harder. It's not about me just coming up unilaterally with some brilliant idea or knock off of somebody else's brilliant idea and hoping to make money on that. It's, and specifically what we see in the text is you and I have got to faithfully follow the instructions of God with the little that I already have. With the little that I've already got. The widow had a jar, a flask of olive oil, something like this. This text doesn't tell us, but I would just about wager money uh, knowing the way Scripture works. That flask was not full. It just wasn't because so many other instances in Scripture, it's like when somebody, you know, I, I think of the, the widow of Zarephath with Elijah who, you know, she's down to the end of, end of it all. And, uh, that's, and I, this is sort of a parallel of that idea, that text, and suspect it was she just had about that much and Elijah is telling her go get all the jars you can get borrow them from all the neighbors bring them and she has to be thinking in her mind this is weird and she's thinking to herself never I've never seen this in scripture some of us will be thinking where is that in the bible well it's not God is God has got an idea here for you. It's not contrary to Scripture, but you know, he's not given you, point, or, you know, book, chapter, and verse, uh, something, somebody to follow already. And, and so what does this woman do? I mean, she goes and knocks on all the doors of her fam uh, neighbors, and she brings all the, all the jars that she can, and she brings them home. And she and her sons go in the house and shut the door. Look at verses 3 to 6. Look at that with me. Elisha said, borrow as many empty jars as you can from your friends and neighbors and then go into your house with your sons and shut the door behind you and pour olive oil from your flask into the jars, setting each one aside when it's filled. And, when, and notice what the text says. So she did as she was told. Her sons kept bringing jars to her, and she filled one after another, and soon every container was filled to the brim. You know, it's just it's this amazing picture of doing faithfully exactly what God said with the little that she already had. What does God tell you and me to do with the little that we already have when it comes to resources? What's he tell us to do? If we had time, we could work our way through all of Scripture, but you'd find that he talks about tithing. He talks about that in the context of blessing. 
Some of us in our culture today are, are quick to dismiss tithing because we've heard some preacher get on TV who's a whack job and go off on tithing and, you know, and do things with it from a teaching standpoint that you just go, well, that's wacky. And you know what? It probably was wacky, what he said. That does not mean that tithing is wacky or irrelevant to your life and financial well-being. I mean, the scripture is really clear that, that tithing is 10% and it belongs to God. It doesn't belong to you. It doesn't belong to me. It belongs to God. And we're to give it to him. And it's a big deal to him. Malachi chapter 3, verses 8 and following says, should people cheat God? Now, I want you to just think about this is how God characterizes withholding the tithe. Okay, just because he's indicting Israel here, but the principle applies more broadly. He says, should people cheat God? Some translations say rob God. Yet you cheated me. But you ask, what do you mean? When did we ever cheat you? You cheated me of the tithes and offerings due me, God says. You are under a curse. Think about the language of what God is using to describe the people of God. Here. He's saying, you are under a curse. Your finances are under a curse. For your whole nation has been cheating me. He's just saying this is a cultural thing. It's not just individual. The whole nation's doing it. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse so there will be enough food in my temple. If you do, says the Lord of heaven's armies, I'll open the windows of heaven for you. I'll pour out a blessing. Now, just pause for a second. A second. I don't think it's an inconsequential illusion. I don't mean illusion with an I, illusion with an A. It's, it is a significant illusion. I will pour out a blessing so great that you won't have enough room to take it in. Try it. Put me to the test, God says. Your crops will be abundant, for I'll guard them from insects and diseases. Your grapes will not fall from the vine before they're ripe, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Then all nations will call you blessed, for your land will be such a delight, says the Lord of heaven's armies. I mean, God wanted Israel, and he wants us to understand that tithing releases the blessing of God in a person's finances. It's not a preacher's theoretical idea. It's in the Bible. It's in the Bible. So I just ask you, do you need more money? Do you need to escape debt? Do you need more of God's provision? Do you need resources to multiply of some sort in your life? Do you feel like your finances are cursed? Some of us have gotten to that point at times. Question is, are you tithing? Are you, are you cheating God, robbing him of that which is rightfully his? Another financial instruction that we, we dare not ignore is that we need to learn to be generous, which some of us think tithing is generosity. No, tithing is satisfying a debt between us and God is really what that is when you, you study Scripture, is, is really what that is. Generosity is a different thing. Generosity is about developing a charitable, loving heart toward God, His kingdom, others in need, that kind of thing. It's really about that. I mean, listen to the promise of Jesus to those of us who pursue a lifestyle of generosity. Jesus says in Luke 6, verse 38, He says, Give and you will receive. Your gift will return to you in full, pressed down, shaken together to make room for more, running over, notice the language, poured into your lap, you start reading passages like this and you start noticing this whole idea of pouring all over the place. Why? Because 
Because God wants to pour blessing and resources and provision into your life. And Jesus says, the amount you give will determine the amount you get back. You could summarize some of that by just saying, he's just saying, as you grow in generosity, you'll learn that you cannot outgive God. You can't, you can't be more generous than him. It's just impossible. Again, here's the important insight all of this. If the woman had to faithfully follow the instructions of God with the little that she had, don't you expect that God would require the same thing of you and me? That we learn to faithfully follow the instructions of God with the little that we have? It's a principle in Scripture that Jesus hits on several times in the New Testament. One time, one instance is Luke 16, and there's another instance or two. And he says, uh, it's the principle that those who are faithful with little, guess what? Are entrusted with more. It's the way the kingdom of God operates. Which means, if I'm going to experience more of the provision of God in my life and in my family, I, I not only have to think differently about money, but I have to behave differently with it. I mean, I need to trust more. I need to trust more. And that's a stretch for every one of us. None of us are exception to that. Because we are more than any culture that's ever lived. I think a money-driven culture. Think of the definition of what capitalism is. I mean, it is entirely our whole culture built on money. That's just the way it is. And we grow up with that awareness, every one of us. And we got to understand that it's not all about money. It's all about God who is the provider of everything else that we need. Now, if we take these financial instructions here in Scripture as seriously as the widow took, Elisha, uh, took Elisha's instructions, we'll find that the third insight is that we'll harvest more. We'll harvest more. I was real reluctant to use the word harvest because it sounds like a TV preacher. Sorry about that. Harvest more, but it, but it fits. It fits. Because Paul uses the analogy in Corinthians that you reap what you sow. And Jesus uses the same analogy, really that same idea in Luke 6, where he says that, you know, as you give, the amount you give will determine the amount you receive. You harvest, you get back, it says. So it's, it's a biblical principle. We're just weary of the language of it. But it's really the third insight of the text is that you know, as we put into practice these things, we, we will begin to harvest more. And how does that happen? It will happen because we will, we will have begun to live in such a way that the heaven's, heaven's door will open so that we can experience more of the miraculous provision of God in our lives. It's the path to someday seeing the oil multiply. It's the, the path to seeing money multiply. It's the path to someday kind of looking at our world and just hearing the thought, just the thought, you know, now I can pay my debts. And me and my sons or my wife, and I can live on what's left over. We'll see God's provision. So my question is uh, for you, will you, uh, will you take God and his financial instructions seriously? 
and not just ponder them, because here's the thing, our culture, we are, we are a student-driven culture. What do I mean about the, by that? I mean, we have universities all over the place. I mean, we have people coming from all over the world to be students in America. And it's great. We can learn. I mean, we can parse the Greek words, and we can study the Hebrew words, and we can, we can entertain the minutia of what tithe means, and we can study every verse, and we, can do, and we can debate about various interpretations of some of this. But here's the thing. We can do all that and never put it into practice, and guess what? Guess what? It's like the farmer who never puts the seed in the ground. What happens? Harvest time comes, and you got nothing what happens. Teachings like this are not about intellectual instruction or pondering. It is about action. It's about just the practicality of God says it. Now, <laughs> I'm going to just do as the scriptures say. And guess what? I'm going to try God. I'm going to see if it works. This is not rocket science. I can test this. I can try it. It's my belief that God is still saying to people today, test me in this. Try me. There are a few things in my life that have um, confirmed. I mean, I can think of a couple of instances in my life, defining moments when, when God has gotten my attention most all of them, but one that I can think of involved money. Where it was me testing generosity in some way only to see God exceed what I was doing. Think back to a campaign we did years ago. Um, it's our Bridge to the Future campaign where we were expanding all of this, acquiring this side of the building, build out over here and the land that we own and so forth. And we had given, uh, you know, what at the stage of our lives was a, a lot of money. I mean, it was a lot of money up front and uh, commitments over the next three years. And uh, that meant that we were not going to be able to move to a house that we kind of had been interested in moving into and getting a bigger house and various things because we had boys at that age and getting bigger. And we just said, this is what we're supposed to do. And about uh, five months later, out of the blue, a check came for the same amount of money that we'd committed like five-figure check, like a big five-figure check that we'd committed. And um, from a source that we could have never imagined, why, why do I point that out? I, I point it out because I just want you to understand that when you, when you test God in this stuff, uh, we waited five months. I mean, it didn't happen like boom, but when God provided, I mean, it was one of those things you go, this, this was God. We knew that. Um, and it does something inside your spirit. It really does. You do begin to realize, I'm not the source of this stuff. And that's not just intellectual knowledge. It's experiential life. And it does something for the soul. Maybe as I've been talking this morning, the Holy Spirit's prompting you in some way. And I just want to encourage you to act on the prompting of his spirit with regard to this. Try God in this and just see. See if he doesn't open the windows of heaven and bless you.
You know, there's so many resources out there nowadays that are really good when it comes to financial things. I you know, don't want to go off on all of them, but I do, I do want to encourage you. I mean, you've got financial peace, uh, which Dave Ramsey, he's on the radio every day, and, you know, he's, he's a little abrupt and edgy sometimes when he, you know, there's a lot of wisdom, a lot of biblical wisdom in what he teaches. He's a devoted Christian man. Listen to what he's saying. Look at some of his stuff. To the extent that he's teaching the Word of God, follow it. Think of a guy named Robert Morris. He's a pastor down in, in uh, South Lake, Texas, who's probably gone a, a, as much as anybody helped me in this area. He's written a book called The Blessed Life. He'll help stretch and grow your faith. The Blessed Life. Robert Morris is his name. I'll buy you the book if you want a copy. Why do I say that? Because I know it'll bless your life and because I know that you'll be glad that I gave it to you. So on your insert today, if you want a copy of the book, just make sure you put your name and say, I would like a copy of The Blessed Life by Robert Morse and to make sure I've got your contact info and I'll, I'll give it to you. I'll buy it. It'll bless your life. But these are just some of the resources that are out there from people who aren't wacky, okay? People aren't crazy people. But this book is the best resource on this just putting into practice what it says. And as you do, what we'll discover is that every one of us can experience more of God's provision in our lives because he's generous and he has all the resources in the world. One last story, and then I want to wrap up. I'll wrap up with this. I want to close by telling you a true story of another person who's learned all of this in a big way, somebody you'll be familiar with, and, and, but give you context to this in maybe a way that you've not heard. 1986, the world was crashing in around David Green. Maybe some of you know who David Green is. Maybe you don't. Uh, many of you have been in his hobby and craft business, Hobby Lobby. But in 1986, it was about to be foreclosed on. The oil boom in Oklahoma had gone bust. Overextended banks were failing. Lots of business owners in Oklahoma City had already given up. They'd either closed their doors in defeat or declared bankruptcy or, you know, independent of their declaration, been foreclosed on. Uh, it was a horrible time. My dad was forced into retirement in those years. I am intimately acquainted with that era and grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma, so I know. But during that period of time, it was at that moment when they were about to foreclose on Hobby Lobby, David Green and his family... Uh, it became a defining moment for them. If you know their story, I'd have read it anywhere, a defining moment in their spiritual lives. David Green says this. He says, I know I prayed prior to that time, but that was when I got really serious about prayer. And in an article that Pray Magazine wrote here a few years ago, David tells how the space beneath his office desk became a prayer closet for him. I mean, here in his corporate office, he would crawl under his desk CEO of, of Hobby Lobby crawl under his desk in his corporate office to seek God for guidance, for help, for ideas, for, you know, just to, to pray and plead with God about the, the well-being of their family and all the families that were employed by them and so forth. And, and as he prayed and as he reflected on Scripture, he describes how he would remember his parents' example of faith and their generosity. His story was that his father was a small-town preacher who bounced around from one tiny congregation to another, eventually landing at a church in Altus, Oklahoma. If you've ever been to Altus, but it was a church of 35 people. It was a speck in the middle of a road, a kind of speck of a town in the midst of a sea of cattle, ranches, cotton fields. I mean, this is, this is just a little old place. 
And his family subsisted on hand-me-down clothes and food donations from the congregation, as he tells it. I mean, they would go weeks without having meat on their table. But that didn't stop David Green's mother from giving to their church or others in need. And that testimony of her life and his, her, his father's life was just forever marked him. And following that example of faith, David Green, during their time of crisis... As a family, they committed to becoming increasingly generous people with what they had right now in that moment, as well as whatever God would choose to give them in the years to come. And since that time, if you've paid much attention to Hobby Lobby, since 1986, a lot has changed. As of 2017, Hobby Lobby has grown to over 800 stores, more than $4.3 billion in sales, they employ over 28,000 people providing jobs and livelihoods for those, those families. And get this, as of 2012, now think about this. This is 2012 data. It's, uh, it's increased since then. As of 2012, according to Forbes magazine, Hobby Lobby was taking half of its pre-tax earnings. Okay? Half of its pre-tax earnings. So this isn't after tax. This is before tax. Half of its pre-tax earnings and investing it directly into a portfolio, a large portfolio of charitable Christian ministries that are doing amazing things all over the world. Makes me feel a little better walking in Hobby Lobby. A little bit. Many of you have benefited from some of those organizations. Maybe not even known it. How many of you have ever heard of Uversion Bible app? Raise your hands up high so everybody can see this, okay? You've heard of the Uversion Bible app. You can download it on your phone. David Green, by way of Hobby Lobby, sponsors it. It exists because of his generosity. Several years ago, I, I couldn't get the latest stats, but a few years back, it had over 300 different versions of Scripture in more than 150 languages, all available at the tap of your finger. I mean, that was then, and I know it's more than that now. A little over a month ago, I watched someone, uh, Mark Perrin and I, who were in North Africa, we watched someone in North Africa who didn't have a Bible, who was Muslim, where the, where the Arabic Bible is illegal. We watched them download onto their cell phone the Bible in Arabic. David Green, who's never met that man, helped make that happen. Another of David Green's missions that you and I should know about is in Washington, D.C. It's three blocks from the United States Capitol building right on the National Mall. A few years ago, David Green, by way of Hobby Lobby Profits, purchased a building in Washington, D.C. with the dream of opening a Smithsonian-caliber Museum of the Bible. Maybe you've heard about it in the news. Last week, one of our own visited it. Here's a picture of it from the street. She brought me back this handy-dandy little thing from when she walked through. It's an amazing thing. It's a 430,000-square-foot permanent public home for the Green family's collection of ancient, handwritten biblical scrolls, rare books, ancient cuneiform tablets, with over 44,000 artifacts, it's the largest private collection of biblical antiquities in the world. And it has been amassed mostly since a prayer and financial commitment time that took place way back in 1986. 
I could go on. Here's the point. God has unlimited resources. And he has proven time and time again throughout history and in the present that he's willing to share them with us if we'll respond to him in faith, with, if we'll, we'll trust him with the little that he's already entrusted us with. You and I may not be building Bible museums, but if we'll trust him, we will be making a difference. And we might just be surprised by how God might provide for us and others through him. It can happen in your life. But it has to be tried. I'm going to ask you to stand for me. We're going to close in prayer this morning. Ultimately, this isn't just about financial provision. It really is the kingdom of God is about spiritual provision and the provision of, of forgiveness and grace and the love of God for you and me. And that was what the cross was all about. And maybe this morning, I mean, the true message for you is that you need to open your heart to Jesus knowing that he gave his life for you. And that's a beginning point. And if you open your heart to him, he'll forgive you, he'll cleanse you, he'll make you yours, he'll promise you heaven forever, he'll promise to be in fellowship with you now and throughout eternity. And some of us this morning maybe just need to look heavenward and say, Lord Jesus, that's what I need in my life. I need cleansing, I need your spirit in me. Make me yours. That's a beginning place. Maybe there are others of us, though, who need to commit to taking God at his word and uh, see what God does. Bow our heads and pray, and afterwards, if you need specific prayer, I'd be happy to pray with you up here. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you that you care about us, that you've not left us as orphans, but you've sent your Holy Spirit, and you are at work in our world, and you're even at work in our finances. You demonstrate that. I think of so many instances where you've been at work in our lives, and I know you've done it so many people here. But I know there are those of us who wrestle with, God, I need this. And you know what this is. Would you counsel them by your spirit on the steps they need to take? Help them, help them to trust you with the little that they may have at the moment. That they might see your great and mighty hand of deliverance and blessing and provision. Because nothing is impossible for you. Thank you, God, for your grace. That you're merciful Every day your mercies are new. You make them new for us right now. Thank you for Jesus' sacrifice, for his cleansing. May you apply it to our lives. Help us to walk in your ways so we can leave this place. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. And everybody agreed with me and said, amen. 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 Bless you all.